Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello and welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib. I'm here with JP Erico. How are you, JP? I'm doing great. Wonderful. So today's episode is a continuation of our last episode. And during these two, we're speaking with regards to the effects of psychedelics on the body and on the autonomic nervous system. Now, psychedelic drugs, psychedelic medications and their uses do have some potential negative or consequential effects here. And so just before we kind of get into the content of today's episode again, we want to start with a bit of a disclaimer. JP, why don't you go ahead with that? Sure. And it's important what you just said about the fact that psychedelics were at one point in time medications. They were used in research only. And so much the same way we don't regularly go out and buy drugs that are in development because only one out of a hundred of them ever actually make it into the clinic because of safety issues and otherwise, we don't want people taking them. But even beyond that, we had two podcasts, sort of a two-part series on drugs like cocaine, meth, and opioids that are drugs of abuse that are causing all sorts of havoc in our society. And we disclaimed that the use of those drugs was very bad and the consequences were sort of self-evident that that was the case. In the case of psychedelics, it's a little more nuanced. There are benefits associated with psychedelics and we're big advocates of scientists and researchers researching the right analogs of these compounds for use in the clinic, ultimately, potentially, but we are absolutely not in favor of people using the current versions of these psychedelics to self-medicate or otherwise treat conditions or, and certainly not for use as an enjoyable thing, something that they're doing for recreation. So I just want to lay that out there that anything that we talk about right now that could be interpreted in a positive way is really only intended to be a positive from the standpoint of this could be very interesting to research and ultimately to find the right compounds that could be used in the clinic, not in any way to suggest that anybody listening to this go out and get a hold of any of these compounds and ingest them or use them otherwise in themselves. Yeah, we're simply just pointing towards the opportunity for positive therapeutic benefit in the right therapeutic evidence and in the right therapeutic environment. And that the use of any of these should be supervised in the right context by the right individuals that know what they're doing. So that's really the key to this is that's our disclaimer for today. There are some positives that can come from this. There also are negatives and consequences. We want to avoid those at all costs. So without further ado, why don't we look back at a couple of the psychedelics and the topics that we spoke on the last episode. So last episode, we started with mescaline and we ended on psilocybin. Today, we're going to get into LSD and DMT. We'll get into those eventually, but why don't we start with mescaline, how it creates the effect that it does, and then we'll head into the psychedelic of psilocybin after that. Sure. So mescaline and psilocybin, both as well as LSD and DMT, all function primarily for their psychedelic effects through the 5-HT2A receptor, which is one of the serotonin receptor family members. It is naturally occurring and there are actually endogenous compounds and we'll talk about one of them later that our bodies make in order to bind to that receptor so as a result we're not distorting anything that the body doesn't already have or introducing something that the body doesn't already need at some level to be activated mescaline is a compound that is cactus in multiple different forms of it psilocybin mescaline is a little different from psilocybin. It's derived from the amino acid phenylalanine, which is a precursor to tyrosine. And it has the ability to bind again to the 5-HT2A receptor. And it has this hallucinogenic effect because it's activating certain areas of the prefrontal cortex and suppressing areas of connectivity. And we spent a little time and it's worth maybe revisiting the differences between sort of natural creativity pathogenic, schizophrenic hallucinations, and then hallucinations that are drug-induced. But in all cases, 
it appears that there is a level of activity in an area of the brain uh, in the prefrontal cortex that acts as sort of the creative area that's called the default mode network and that it is in constant communication back and forth with what we sort of refer to as the critic if you will and that's your central executive function area and those two bounce back and forth sort of competing with one another to come up with ideas and then making certain that they're good ideas and when that connectivity breaks down and you activate that default mode network more strongly than it otherwise is naturally, you get hallucinations because the default mode network is the creative side. It's creating all sorts of different perceptions and ideas and things like that. And what ends up happening is there's no governor, if you will. There's no brake pedal on that process. So it's all gas and no brake pedal. In the case of schizophrenia, it's constant. It's a pathology that's not getting better. In the case of hallucinations due to drugs or otherwise, they are transient, but they can feel extremely real. And that's probably one of the more dangerous aspects of it is that you lose a sense of reality. You enter an altered reality state in which you are perceiving things differently from the way other people perceive them. And as a result, you can believe what's happening around you that you're seeing when it's not in fact real. So mescaline is, it binds to this 5-HT2A receptor, but it also binds actually even more strongly to the 5-HT2C receptor. And what we talked about last time was that binding to this 5-HT2A receptor can be, in theory, activating of the immune system. And in fact, peripherally, it is activating of the immune system. But it appears that the binding to the 2C receptor modulates that somewhat. And as a result, the net effect may be to be anti-inflammatory. So mescaline is an agent that is illegal in the United States. Again, just to reinforce the point, not suggesting that anybody use it, but it does activate certain areas of the brain that are normally there to be activated, not in any way, shape or form as strongly as mescaline does, but it does have the ability to activate pathways in the, in the brain that are necessary. Um, and so if you have, the, the, the scientific hope is that we will be able to find compounds that activate these receptors, that activate the pathways that are necessary in patients where those are faulty, and that we can restore proper function to them without having the attending hallucinogenic effects or, or other negative effects that may be part of the drug. That's absolutely right. And just a little side note for those who are unaware, mescaline is the compound found in the cactus, and this is traditionally in the indigenous population known as peyote. Mescaline can be synthesized outside of that within the lab, and that is often what's utilized in the therapeutic sense or in the research that we are now looking at. Exactly. Psilocybin is not that dissimilar from mescaline. They are separate compounds, but they're derived again from the amino acid, um, you know, one of the amino acids in this case, I think it's tyrosine. Um, and uh, psilocybin, which is the chemical compound in the mushrooms, actually isn't the drug itself. It's a prodrug. It is converted into another compound called psilocin, which is actually what survives in the body. And again, it binds to the 5-HT2A receptor, but it also binds to the 5-HT1A receptor which makes it a little different from mescaline in that mescaline is binding to the 5-HT2C receptor. It has similar hallucinogenic effects because of the 5-HT2A receptor, um, but it has a little bit of a different effect on the experience that you have while having that hallucinogenic experience. It also has the ability to bind to other receptors that other hallucinogenics don't. For example, the histamine receptor. So that is a pretty strong pro-inflammatory pathway. And so it does appear that at least with respect to the histamine pathways, it's pro-inflammatory. Whether or not it's also anti-inflammatory because of other effects is yet to be determined, part of the reason why we advocate for study. And the drug has been around for a, a long time. It was first synthesized artificially by Sandoz and uh, by a researcher by the name of Hoffman 
And they actually sold the drug as indocybin to be used in research. And some of the things that were discovered in the research that was done is that in addition to the serotonin receptors and the histamine receptors, it also seems to alter glutamate activity. Glutamate is another neurotransmitter. In this case, it's the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. The thought is that the activation or modulation of this glutamate activity actually is the reason for users having what's referred to as this subjective experience of ego dissolution, becoming one with the universe, where you sort of lose connection with what's you and what's not you. So that appears to be sort of a unique experience associated with psilocybin versus some of the other drugs. Although you do hear about that with LSD and other things. The final thing I'll say about it is that the other thing that psilocin does in the body is it's ideally broken down by the same mechanisms that break down neurotransmitters. That's monoamine oxidase or MAO. And those of you out there who are familiar with sort of that first generation of antidepressants, you know of MAOIs. So inhibition of MAO has the ability to extend the period of time in which neurotransmitters are present in the synaptic cleft and available for having their neurotransmitter effects. This drug, because it requires MAO to break it down, it then therefore extends the life of some neurotransmitters in that synaptic cleft. And things like alcohol and tobacco that also use MAO can have similar effects of extending the high or the trip that you go on with psilocin. Absolutely. A little bit of background on those two drugs, and, and we're going to be hitting some of these with LSD and DMT. The final thing about hallucinogenic drugs that we talked about was that they really do seem to have the ability to upregulate not just neuronal activity, but neurogenesis. So you're actually in certain areas of the brain actually producing new neurons at a higher rate than you otherwise would, because there are areas of the brain where the continuing production of new neurons is normal, like in the hippocampus. And not only are we producing these new neurons, but we're creating new synapses. We're making new connections at a faster pace. Again, it doesn't last very long. And with repeated use, it takes more and more of the drug to have that same effect, but it has this restorative benefit in the case where a person may have a pathology that has broken down their ability to produce new synapses or breaking down their ability to produce new neurons. So it has clinical potential to be used in situations, for example, in schizophrenia, where part of the problem is a breakdown of the number of synapses and the connections in the brain. So if you can restore that, it may have benefit. That's exactly right. And this is where therapeutically, these drugs have the potential to have a really positive effect in the cases where people have those particular conditions that don't allow for neurogenesis or don't allow for microglial function to allow for the new connections to be built, where the disconnection between the default mode network and the, the central kind of the breaks to that network are turned off. And so we want to create that or rebuild that connection where the creative and the logical can work together in harmony and not have one overriding the other. And so that's a really important piece of the puzzle here. I think this is a great time to dig into the other two options that we have here that we're going to talk about. The first one being LSD. So why don't we dig into that one as well? Sure. And so with respect to mescaline and psilocybin, both of them are derived from plants, a cactus or a mushroom. We think of LSD as sort of entirely synthesized in the lab, but it actually isn't true that that's the case. It is derived, it's an analog of a chemical that comes out of ergots. Ergots are a form of fungus that has been used for literally hundreds of years for the treatment of a variety of different conditions. Certain ergotamines, which are in the ergots, they're amines, compounds that are found in this fungus, have been used for treating headaches that are very, very strong vasoconstrictors. It's actually been used to treat hemorrhage because of that effect as well. But a Swiss chemist, this guy Hoffman from Sandoz, we just talked about him before. He was the one who uh, isolated uh, indocybin from psilocybin. He's the one at Sandoz who synthesized 
LSD. It was the 25th derivative of ergotamines, extracts from ergotamines, the ergots that he identified. And so that's why it's often referred to as lysergic acid diethylamide number 25, because that's the one that he uh, tried. And back in the 1940s and 1950s, when he was working, crazy to say this, but not uncommon for organic chemists to actually taste what they synthesized, that they that was one way. I mean, we could look at the color of it. We could uh, do all sorts of analyses. But back then, they didn't have the same tools that we have today. So they sort of tasted things to know what they had formed with their chemical reactions, which is crazy because of possibility of toxins, et cetera. And this is a perfect example. In fact, I think back in the 1940s and 1950s, the life expectancy of an organic chemist was barely out of their 50s because of all the things that they were tasting and putting into their bodies, having a toxic effect. But in any event, Hoffman tasted this ergot and found and described a pretty profound hallucinogenic effect that he was having where colors were distorted, shapes were distorted, his visual perception was altered. And he didn't do anything about it other than make note of it. And, but several years later, he decided to synthesize it again and really took what we would call the first real trip on LSD. And he tried to ride his bicycle home. It was a, a time when bicycles were the mode of transport. And he had quite a, an acid trip along the way. Then became publicized and other people heard about it and started using it. Now, again, this is another drug that was developed and used in research. So it was actually marketed as something called Delicid in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And there was a psychiatrist named Humphrey Osmond, who actually is the person who coined the term psychedelic. And he used it and wrote about it and to some extent was very clinical about its effects. And so he was a big advocate for using it. Even before it was banned, it was only one of a series of different compounds of a similar design that were developed and we'll call them lysergic compounds. And one of them that ultimately did become a drug used to treat headaches is methasergide. Methasergide was developed, it's also called Deseril or Sansert. I think in Canada it's called Sansert. But it was used to treat headaches because of, again, the benefits of, of ergots in general in the treatment of headaches. Ergotamines, were used to treat headaches and are still actually used in the hospital. They have to be delivered intravenously to treat severe, severe headaches. So those are some of the little tidbits historically about it. The military, LSD gets a bit of a bad rap because of some of the human testing that was done in the military and with the CIA, it was, people talked about mind control, but I think that's probably a little bit of a science fiction-y kind of thinking because it probably had exactly the opposite effect. In fact, there's some videos that you can see online of that were actually made by the military showing what the effects were of it on troops, volunteers. And you could definitely just observe that the troops were no longer functioning in a way that would suggest mind control. It was more lack of control. It was probably more tested to see if it could be a non-lethal disabling agent a temporary way to disable a crowd or a group of troops, but it ultimately was never actually used that way. Kind of crazy to think that something as difficult to kind of wrap your head around as LSD could have been used in that way. Really interesting from like a military mind control, quote unquote, kind of thought process there. It's really interesting. Even the idea of organic chemists tasting their whatever they've kind of created in the lab is in itself at this point in time considered absolutely taboo and entirely out of the realm of possibility for what we would do today. So just really interesting to hear these little tidbits with regards to things like psychedelics and LSD. Yeah, I'm sure it was probably even more tragic. Every once in a while, you probably hear about one of your colleagues that tasted something that was highly toxic and dropped dead. Just don't understand why that would be the certainly would be a motivation for me to come up with other ways of figuring out what it was that I had synthesized. Yeah, no um, problem. 
you know, the one thing I'm, I will say is LSD very early on, it was recognized the potent effects on headaches, which is ultimately the reason why methasergide was developed. There were other compounds that were developed in the military. And I know of one of those compounds that apparently also had very strong anti-migraine benefits that was being developed up in Massachusetts at McLean Hospital, which is, I guess, part of the MGH uh, Harvard network. But that was 15 years ago. I don't know if it ever made it out of the clinic, but it was certainly something that was had potential promise and just demonstrates the extent to which continuing research in these areas is valuable. On the flip side, out in Oregon, you know, one of the states in the United States that is tends to be on the fringe of these things, actually passed a law in 2020 making possession of small amounts of LSD legal. Obviously, the federal government is still very much opposed to that. So certainly wouldn't suggest anybody in Oregon taking advantage of that legal loophole that the population of Oregon seemed to pass. But it's part of that same feeling that we should be investigating and exploring these compounds because their effects. LSD, like psilocybin and glen, is an agonist of the 5-HT receptor, which means it binds to it. It's also a pretty strong agonist of the 5-HT1A receptor. There's research out there from the 1950s and 60s showing it's antidepressant and anti or anxiolytic effects, treating anxiety conditions. And it really has a very similar effect to other classes of antidepressants. We talked about the MAOIs, but in this case, it's more like the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor medications that are sold in billions of dollars of those are sold every year. I wonder whether or not LSD analogs might actually be somewhat safer than SSRIs and perhaps maybe scientifically better grounded. I know there's a lot of research right now suggesting that the neurotransmitter rationale or mechanism of depression is under fire. I don't know that it's entirely true to we should be throwing it out with the bathwater, but I think that there is some reason to explore it in another direction. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think if we can find ways to actually help people without risking a lot of potential health challenges and do so with natural tools where possible, I think we should be exploring that at all costs. Yeah, there are some risks with LSD as a compound itself. It's probably the one of the hallucinogenic drugs that has some potential to be addictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know each one of these hallucinogenic compounds binds to the 5-HT2A receptor to produce the hallucinogenic effects, but it also has other off-target binding potential. We talk about the 5-HT1A receptor in the case of LSD, but it also has the ability to bind to the dopamine receptor. And so there's a slightly higher potential for it to be addictive, although there's some reason to believe that the addictiveness of the dopamine receptor binding is offset by the 5-HT receptor binding. So still, again, more research to be done to, to truly see this. But as with most hallucinogens, there doesn't appear to be a high level of addiction other than people enjoying the experience. Some people hate it but some people enjoy it. And as a result of enjoying the experience, they may choose to do it again. And again, with respect to any compound that hasn't been fully tested, it's a little risky. We do know that there is some level of tolerance buildup that occurs. So your brain and your body are resisting those effects and are uh, becoming resistant means you need more of the compound to cause the same benefits. And so much research has to be done in order to figure out exactly what is happening with respect to those tolerance changes, the changes that are happening in the brain that cause that. We do know that the autonomic nervous system is affected by LSD, pupil dilation, increased blood pressure, even body temperature changes. And it's interesting because the direction of these modulatory effects on the autonomic nervous system are typically ones associated with headache condition. The the fact that we have um, potential for LSD to be used as a treatment for headaches or an analog of it to be treated for headaches is interesting because it appears to be driving 
the autonomic nervous system modulation that's more associated with those conditions. So it may actually be able to teach us something about why the body is having those effects on the autonomic nervous system. It may be the body's attempt to prevent the headache, but something else that's driving the headache and this response is secondary, but an LSD just drives that response even further. But very interesting to hear that. I'd love to see more research being done in that particular area to Absolutely. exactly what's causing the headache in the first place. Absolutely. Now, again, anything that modulates the autonomic nervous system has an effect on the inflammatory, the immune system. And so LSD does appear to have an anti-inflammatory effect, even though does appear to have reasons why it would be driving a pro-inflammatory posture. It does increase circulating cortisol levels and other things in the bloodstream like prolactin and oxytocin and epinephrine that are modulatory of the immune system. And so there's still a lot of work to be done to determine how does this compound and its analogs affect the immune system. This really does kind of focus on how we're triggering the autonomic functions. Do we have any info on what LSD does with regards to hormones potentially or particular hormones being activated? Beyond the sort of natural cortisone, cortisol effects, not a lot of additional information beyond claims being made that it's anti-inflammatory. The oxytocin one is really interesting. In the 1960s, the counterculture revolution and the hippie movement, one of their big concepts beyond peace was love. And oxytocin is the love hormone that happens in your brain. Chocolate has the effect of releasing oxytocin, which is the reason why men give chocolate to women at holidays. That's very uh, traditional. <laughs> Probably can go the other way as well. I'm sure men have a similar effect in their brains with chocolate. And so probably be more effective going the other way. In any event, oxytocin is something that LSD releases and that whole peace and love movement of the hippies, which nothing wrong with those sentiments, but certainly was in part associated with the use of LSD and it led to LSD being and other hallucinogens being banned in the United States and around the world. And so in the long run, I think it set science back that people were overusing these or using them for recreational purposes. I'd love to get past what happened in the 1960s and 70s and move into the 2020s and beyond and maybe bring these compounds back to be studied. It is quite sad to think that we almost lost out on about 30, 40 years worth of really good research on these tools because of how it was kind of utilized and, and the media approach to how these things kind of went down. So yeah, I'll say that in 1985, I think it was, it might have even been later than that, the United States government, which was involved in this research and knew about the benefits, knew about its effects, released a report basically saying that it had none of these effects. It discounted and tried to disprove all of the research that had been going on in the late 50s through the 1960s, demonstrating potential therapeutic benefits in real conditions like depression, anxiety, migraines, and other things. And they discounted it. And I think it put a chill to the extent that anybody would have wanted to use the drug for research. It put a real chill on the, the field. And that really didn't come back around until I think 2009 was really the first time that a study was done in like 30 years on a hallucinogenic compound for potential use. So kudos to the researchers who decided to fight through whatever red tape they had to, to get to the point where they starting to study it again. I want to say that it was the Mayo Clinic or Harvard or something like that. I have to go back and look at the research, but it was somebody with a lot of clout in terms of research ability and, and strength that took that on. So kudos to them for doing it. Absolutely. I will say there was some background research that was going on for quite a while in the 90s and early 2000s, and that was the MAPS study, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. But it was very much in the background until very recently. And that's been a leading driver in understanding how these tools can be utilized in a very positive therapeutic way. But they're driving the research back into the forefront and bringing that up to people that need to hear it. And I'm kind of glad that it is happening. Yeah, there's no question the MAPS research 
was going on in the background. I think maybe it was just bad press, et cetera, but it was generally discounted as advocates for drug use and, and things like that. There were clearly very, very reputable researchers who were involved in that. They're probably the reason why they ultimately got that work in 2009 accomplished at a high enough institution of high enough reputation that it, it sort of reignited this field. We're excited to see what they're going to do. Why don't we shift gears back to a naturally occurring substance that uh, we can talk a little bit about, and that will be our last psychedelic that we're speaking of, which is ayahuasca, particularly DMT. Yeah, DMT is the active compound in ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is sort of a a proprietary blend, if you will. (laughs) Every shaman had its own or her own form of how to brew it, but basically it is the root of it is a fibrous paste made from pounding the wood of a certain vine along with certain leaves. B. caapi is the vine, and it, it contains these alkaloids, DMT and others, that are orally active. Sometimes the brewing process extracts it and concentrates it. It's actually very similar to another compound. It's actually almost identical to a compound that was isolated from blight weed that comes from the Middle East. Um, it's a, a semi-poisonous weed called peganum, say peganum harmala. Um, and the, the chemical compound was called harmine. And harmine was ultimately shown to be exactly the same as the DMT or the ayahuasca active compound. But in Syria and the Middle East, it was considered to be a blight because cows and other grazing animals would get into it and eat it, and it was would make them sick. It would give them probably an overdose, if you will, of the drug, the, the psychoactive compound. So interestingly, in the Middle East, it was not considered a drug. It was considered a blight. But in South America, the shaman, other people who used it, had figured out how to extract a non-lethal or non-toxic dose of it. In the end, this has been around for thousands of years. And in the 1700s, the Spanish missionaries, the same groups that came across peyote and mescaline being used, they saw this being used and they considered it the devil's work. It was something that was sort of got its first bad rap from Western European explorers and missionaries. Whereas had that not had the religious overtones, it might have had a bit different rap. It was actually ultimately like other compounds like peyote. It was allowed in modern religious ceremonies. So there are, are indigenous people religious ceremonies that incorporate these things and is actually available in places like Bolivia and Brazil to be used if you're part of that religious movement. The only place where you can go and under supervision use these readily accessible is Jamaica. You know, Jamaica is sort of well-known for, probably not in a good way, but well-known for um, marijuana and the sort of the jokes about that. But in Jamaica, their laws are far freer about these things. And so there are, we'll call them semi-medical retreats where people can go and use psilocybin and DMT. So DMT is the active compound. It's an analog of tryptamine, just the way many of the other hallucinogens are derived from uh, an amino acid. It's actually a substance that's made in the human body. So you have the argument, if you are so inclined to say, that you're using an endogenously produced compound that's designed for intracellular binding to something called the sigma-1 receptor. The sigma-1 receptor is associated with activation of energy, pathways in the cell for creating ATP and other things. DMT is a very short-lived compound. It lasts for only a matter of minutes, 5, 10, 15 minutes when it is injected or inhaled, so it's rapidly assimilated into the body. In order to extend the experience uh, or the trip, people used brews and drank it like a tea so that they would have the slowing of the absorption and requiring it to go through the gut. Like all of the hallucinogens, it binds to 5-HT2A receptor, but it also binds, much like mescaline and psilocybin, it binds to the 5-HT1A receptor and 2C receptor. But unlike them, it also binds to the 5-HT2B receptor. 
So it has a slightly different experience associated with it. Does it also bind anything with regards to dopamine and dopamine receptors? It does. I said before that LSD was somewhat unique. It was the first of the three that we had discussed before that binds to dopamine. Yes, ayahuasca does bind or DMT does bind to dopamine receptors. But again, the 5-HT2C receptor binding appears to modulate any risk of addiction. So again, not seeing a lot of addiction associated with the use of ayahuasca or DMT. So you're seeing more of uh, people enjoying the experience and potentially doing it again or wanting to do it again, but it's not an addictive drive with the withdrawal and, and whatnot. Some people enjoy the experience, but you're activating areas of the central nervous system that are creative. There are plenty of people who have bad trips, bad experiences. So it's dangerous. You are rolling the dice that you're going to have a bad trip. And it's not something where you can sort of shake your head or take an antidote and snap out of it. You're going to be there for the duration in a very, very bad experience. Absolutely. Um, now, does that mean that it doesn't have the therapeutic benefits that it might be conferring? I don't know. I don't know that there's been enough research to tell us whether or not only good trips lead to positive outcomes versus bad trips. But I think this that just goes to show there needs to be more research. And there have been, as recently as this year, there was a case study reported about the use of DMT, inhaled DMT in this case, so it would be a short-term effect, on the effects of, on the parasympathetic nervous system, on the autonomic nervous system. And the increase in heart rate variability. Now, you and I have talked a lot about the importance of heart rate variability. Heart rate variability, and we haven't actually talked about the specifics of what heart rate variability is. So let's take a moment to describe that. When your heart beats, most people think of your heart, if it's beating like a metronome, it's a very steady beat, that that's a good thing. Turns out that that's not a good thing. In fact, if your heart rate variability, the variation in the time between the beats drops to zero, that is a, <laughs> that's a sign that you need to get to the hospital right away because you are very likely to have a heart attack or some major catastrophic problem. Yeah. So you want to have this change in heart rate. And typically in most people, that is coordinated through respiration. So as you're breathing, you'll see an increase and a decrease in your the variability depending on whether you're inhaling, holding your breath or exhaling. Again, this is tied to your autonomic function through your vagus nerve and it has again DMT has the ability to increase that variability which suggests an increase in parasympathetic activation which is vagal tone. And so it appears that DMT has the ability to raise your heart rate variability and raise your vagal tone and give you all the benefits associated with it. Again, that tends to be, as we've discussed before, a very strong anti-inflammatory effect. And yet there needs to be work to see whether or not DMT has that effect in vivo. There have been studies in Petri dishes and in vitro that have shown the ability of DMT and activation of that sigma-1 receptor pathway to reduce inflammatory cytokines. So things like TNF-alpha and IL-1-beta and IL-6 and IL-8, which are your typical monocyte-derived pro-inflammatory cytokines, it appears that DMT has the ability to reduce those, at least in vitro studies, which is consistent with the increase in vivo in the case study of increased in heart rate variability and parasympathetic tone. So still lots of work to be done, probably should be starting in rats and not even going into humans right away, but um, very interesting inflammatory or anti-inflammatory effects and positive effects on the autoimmune system. Just a quick little side note on the HRV piece and understanding HRV. So heart rate is beats per minute. HRV is a measurement of the average variability between number of milliseconds between beats of the heart. So it's a much more in-depth 
understanding. And the reason why a metronomic, very rhythmic heartbeat is bad is because it's not allowing for adaptability. It's not allowing for resilience to stressors. So stressors are going to drive HRV down. It's going to drive it into a very sympathetic response, which is a very metronomic type of rhythmic beat where the parasympathetics, which will push in. So the heart has sympathetic input and parasympathetic input, and there needs to be kind of a a balance, but the sympathetics tend to fire really quickly and the parasympathetics fire really slowly. And that's what creates variability between the time of beats in the heart. So the greater the variability, the more adaptability, the more resilient your heart is to adapting to stressors. Lower HRV is a sign of dysfunction and inability to adapt, where high heart rate variability is a sign of adaptability, resilience, and the ability to manage stressors. We're going to do, at some point, a very good, strong, deep dive into understanding HRV. So look out for that episode if you're really interested. We will get into that because I think that's an important one. And with all these tools and things coming out, like the Aura Ring and the Whoop Band and Apple Watch being able to identify these things, we really want people to understand what HRV means and how we can utilize it really effectively. So these are just really important tools for us to look into, but just a quick little side note there. We don't want a metronome. We want adaptability. We want some changes to be able to occur. The way I think about it is you've got a gas pedal and a brake pedal in a car. If you're cruising down the road at 60 miles an hour and you've got your foot on neither, you have the freedom to speed up or slow down, depending on what's necessary. You have the flexibility. If all you've done is stomp on the brake or stomp on the gas, you've limited your ability to control things and be flexible. And that's what your sympathetic nervous system does. In fact, I was just speaking with, with a woman who is involved in the polyvagal theory of Stephen Porges. And that theory suggests that there's really three different modes there's dorsal vagal, ventral vagal, et cetera. So polyvagal theory says that if you have sympathetic drive, the first way in which that can manifest itself is in panic, that fight or flight mode. But that at some level, that's sort of stomping on the gas. If you can also have a stomping on the brake effect where people freeze. Um, we don't spend a lot of time talking about that here, and I think we probably need to begin doing that, is that there are really two different modes of sympathetic overdrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about the fact that parasympathetic drive is sort of bringing you back to that center. It's getting you back to that coasting. You're in rest and digest. You're just sort of moving happily and freely through your life. Whereas sympathetic activation sort of pushes you away from that. You diverge away from it. But diverging suggests you're going in two different directions. One direction is fight or flight. And we always talk about fight or flight. But the more reptilian mode is to freeze. Um, And so sort of the freezing in terror, which is actually a sympathetic activation. And it's just a different form of sympathetic overdrive. So if you see people who are at work and they're totally stressed and they can't do anything, They're not racing around panicked like a chicken with a head cut off. They're actually just frozen. They can't do anything. You see that sort of ashen look. There's no facial expression. They're just sort of almost catatonic. That is sympathetic overdrive. And so just riffing off what we're talking about, heart rate variability, heart rate variability in situations, either with freezing or with fight or flight mode, you're going to have high level of sympathetic activity and low levels of heart rate variability because everything is in sort of overdrive. You're either stomping on the brakes or stomping on the gas. And it seems that DMT in the short term is able to hyperactivate that parasympathetic response, turn on the HRV, at least in a case study. And so has there been anything with regards to the effect on inflammatory uh, effects or inflammatory cytokines? There, there have. We talked a little bit just before about the fact that in vitro studies show the reduction of the main pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1 and IL-6, there's an upregulation of IL-10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine. So 
there really does appear to be this effect. There also are effects on ion channels like calcium and potassium channels that seem to become less effective and function properly during old age. And so like, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, you see a reduction in that sigma-1 receptor pathway that's associated with these ion channels. And to the extent that DMT binds to those to sigma-1 receptors and enhances that, it's possible that DMT might be a treatment for conditions like Alzheimer's where the reason for the pathology is a loss of sigma-1 activity. So again, just to describe what I'm talking about here a little bit further, sigma-1 receptors are naturally occurring receptors in your body. When you have the need to have something bind to it, the body makes DMT. DMT is used in that setting to activate the sigma-1 receptor pathway. It alters calcium and potassium channels in a way that promotes proper function, healthy function. In patients where that appears to be a pathway that's dysfunctioning, it may be possible to identify the reason why it's dysfunctioning. And if it's a failure to provide DMT naturally, then the external supply of DMT that can be found in ayahuasca and other similar brews may in fact have a clinical benefit. But as with all things, if you're doing something to augment a dysfunction in the body, that's fine. But if you have a healthy body and you're driving that too much, it can lead to a problem. The idea of microdosing might actually be something that is worth trying. You know, there's nothing out there right now to treat Alzheimer's. I'm certain that if I were to be diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, I mean, you lose yourself. Literally, it's a slow, progressive loss of self to preserve myself. I'm not certain that I wouldn't try it, but I'm really hoping that the scientific research would be promoted and that we'd have the opportunity to perfect those medications and really perfect these pathways before we get to the point where something like that affects me or, or my loved ones. Absolutely. And you know what? I think therapeutically, all four of these that we've kind of gone over, all four of this hallucinogens, the, the psychedelic drugs that we've gone through, have some real potential positive benefit in those that are both either suffering or looking for improvement in their overall health. And they need to be studied further. They need to be given much more attention because these are real positive potentials. That said, there are inherent risks overall with any of these, with the use of any of them, bad trip or, or a negative reaction can occur. And so it needs to be done in a therapeutic or very safe environment. And so that's something that we would highly recommend that those who are looking to gain more information on this find therapeutic routes to follow if this is something that you're a interested in doing and b none of these we we do not in any way advocate for recreational use of these tools that these are purely therapeutic and still need to be studied significantly and just to riff on that for anybody who would be otherwise inclined to use these drugs as recreational compounds understand that by doing so, you're just perpetuating the problem or the difficulty in actually producing real therapeutic compounds that ultimately would help people. So unlike cocaine or opioids or meth, where the clinical use of opioids or meth in you know, methamphetamines in ADHD and other things are already established, they're risky. I think that in the case of hallucinogens, abuse of those compounds, you're really having a chilling effect on what ultimately could help a lot of people who are in need. So if there's any degree of selflessness, I would say these aren't addictive drugs, so you're not really addicted to it. From my perspective, it's the equivalent of not getting out of the way of an ambulance. There's an ambulance on the way to the hospital with somebody sick or dying in it, and you're not getting out of the way so that they can speed that person to the hospital. Nobody does that. Everybody knows that's the wrong thing to do. So get out of the way 
your use of these drugs in a recreational capacity is the moral equivalent of, of driving slowly in front of a fire truck or an ambulance. Don't do it. Yeah, I'm going to say that's one of our hot takes that we'll ever have here on the podcast, but I think that's absolutely correct. We don't want to slow the progress here to support those who are really in need. And so I, I think that's an important note to kind of end on today. Uh, any final thoughts at all with regards to the use of psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, or LSD in their therapeutic form? I think that there's great potential. And I'm a big believer in the right to try, which is here in the United States, a relatively new law or guideline that allows for the use of research materials. Drugs have not made it out of the clinical study phase to be used for people who have life-threatening or terminal conditions. I think that Alzheimer's disease qualifies. I think that there's other neurodegenerative conditions that qualify, and at least to my mind that they qualify. I would say that for those people who are uh, facing degenerative conditions, to the extent that you're interested and willing, find clinical studies that make sense to you and try them. And among them, I would consider using and volunteering to participate in clinical studies for hallucinogenic drugs or analogs of them, because I think there's great potential. I can't say they're going to work, but I think there's great potential. And I think that the outcome of that research will ultimately produce viable and very, very useful drug candidates. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful way to end today's episode. So thank you so much for joining JP, for sharing your knowledge again. And for those who are listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You gained some positive information out of it and that there's something to take home. And so please share this with anyone who needs to hear this information. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. Thank you.